0: Hello, everybody. This is the Euphrates Network podcast. Welcome. This is your host, Daniel, with our other host, Shayi. What's up, Shay? How's it going, everyone? Shayi is a doctor, by the way, everyone. He's a very smart guy. And today we're going to be asking him about progressive Christianity. So we've been doing a little mini-series here on evangelicalism and we want to contrast evangelicalism today with progressive Christianity, and we want to talk about what is progressive Christianity, and why does it matter? So let me throw it off here, Shay, What do we first think of when we hear the term progressive Christianity? Shay, why don't you kick it off?
1: Yeah, so I mean, when I think of the word progressive, um, just to start with that word, is that I think of the the underlying worldview that we talked about in the last episode, that as we progress, as we make scientific, to technological discoveries, we arrive at more truth. And so truth is something that isn't kind of revealed to us from the past. It's something that we develop with time as we like make more discoveries. And so the way I understand progressive Christianity um in my estimation because there isn't like a you know there isn't like an official denomination called progressive christianity it's really like a number of people who are christians that would identify as this kind of like grassroots movement that have differing beliefs on different areas but i'd say the thing that ties it all together is this idea that as human beings we're moving towards this like higher level of enlightenment and understanding and so our concept of what Christianity is has to adapt with this development in our world. And so that's that's how I understand progressive Christianity. It's kind of combining this, this worldview of progress in our understanding with trying to adopt and adapt Christianity to fit into this framework of our of our new discoveries. So I've heard of liberal Christianity. Is that kind of the same thing or is it different? I mean, I think it's pretty, I I don't know. I'd have to think about that more, but I wouldn't really say it's different because even when you think politically, I mean, obviously when we think progressive, we think a lot of times we think politics. And I think progressive politics is the same idea, but when applied to politics and, you know, people use the word progressive and liberal interchangeably. So I, I would say there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, maybe liberal has to do more with, you know, the concepts of freedom and not being overly strict about our interpretation. Whereas progressive has more to do with um, kind of the trajectory towards more understanding. Um, But I, I mean, I would even say a lot of people would use the terms interchangeably when it comes to Christianity. So.
0: Gotcha. So when did this really start? Like what kicked off this movement towards a more progressive understanding of Christianity.
1: See, I would I would argue that it's not really new at all. I would say that it's something that has existed in Protestantism from very, very early on. Um I think that most people who would term themselves progressive would see it as a new movement. But since the beginning of Protestantism, when I think about history in the US and the UK, which is where I've read more about where evangelicalism developed out of there was always this tension between people who held to firm beliefs about the authority of the bible and the truth of the stories and people who had more doubts about it you know i think about um there's this like famous story of thomas jefferson and jefferson bible where he created a bible for himself where you know, he was inspired by the teachings of Jesus, but had a lot of doubts over the miracles. And so he like cut out different sections of the Bible just to like kind of conform to like what he believed was true yeah. and helpful in the Bible. That's a perfect example of, you know, this idea of progressive Christianity is that because we've progressed in a certain type of understanding and no longer makes sense in, to him to like believe in the miracles, of the miracles of the Bible. So I'd say that's an early iteration of, what we'd call today progressive Christianity, what back then they might, I mean, I don't even think Thomas Jefferson considered himself a Christian at all, but I'd say there's a lot of different iterations of these same ideas that have existed that have propped up at different times.
0: Yeah, no, I was actually thinking of the same example, uh, how he would cut out all the supernatural stuff, uh, so-called supernatural stuff. Uh, Nice. So okay, as we think about this, uh what are like the what are some of the major driving forces or like the leaders of progressive Christianity and uh, how do the leaders help to shape the movement? Like who are some of the big influences in this movement towards a progressive understanding of Christianity?
1: Yeah, I would say that um you know Richard Rohr is a really big one. Um, by the way, if you if you want to watch a documentary that kind of really highlights some of these leaders, there's this um series called American Gospel. Um, just watch the second one. <laughs> me and Danny have both watched uh the first one. Um, and there's a third one coming out, actually. It's coming taking on the new apostolic reformation, so that one should be fun. But um, a lot of shots fired, yeah. And, and- we don't endorse it
0: wholesale, but
1: yeah. well, the second one I endorse almost wholesale because they're criticizing yeah. people that I'm also I very critical the of. Second one. Yeah. Second one's really good. The first one kind of criticizes some people we like. um. So, but the second one, it basically <laughs> like, they have a number of like progressive Christian leaders on it. Cause it's specifically focused on that movement and they allow, you know, they interview people, they allow them to speak for themselves, but there's a very clear, like, Bias, you know, they, you know, they, they would share the same beliefs that we do in evangelicalism, um. But you see a, a few of the leaders, and um. I, so I'd say a major one is Richard Rohr. He's somehow still a Catholic. Like I don't, I don't know how he's like allowed to hold his. Uh, I think he's like a. Is he a priest? Um, he's some. He has some kind of leadership position in the Catholic Church, um, and, you know clearly has some beliefs that are very out of step with like their official doctrine. Um, There's a book I read by him called uh, the universal Christ, um, which is essentially like a, you know, an apologetic for universalism. Um, So Richard Rohr, I'd say that like a lot of progressive Christian leaders are inspired by him. I'd say Rob Bell was like someone. So pause real quick. Richard Rohr is a universalist. I don't know if he would call himself that, but his belief. So what is a universalist? So universalism, it it it's someone who believes that everyone will be saved through Christ. Um. So like they'll say that yeah, Christ's sacrifice was good, but like it was for everyone, regardless of if you respond to him or not. Um. So that's my under- in reading universal Christ. That's my understanding of what he believed. It's essentially, you know, we talked about the Bebington quadrilateral multiple times, Biblicism, Crucicentricism, Conversionism, and Activism. Universalism really cuts against Crucicentricism and Conversionism. So this idea that individuals need to be converted to Christ, um, they would essentially say, you know, no, Christ already did it for you in a way that you don't actually have to respond to him. And some would even say that the cross... Wasn't that wasn't really necessary for our salvation, but was simply just to demonstrate God's love, but wasn't necessarily to save us. And so, that's an example of Richard Rohr, who would term himself Catholic. Um, you know, he has these beliefs that he's promoting that are cutting across the core of what we believe is essential to Christianity, at least as we how we understand it. Um, so yeah, um, that's universalism, and that's who you, Richard Rohr is. Um, Rob Bell. I would say that he's someone who made the progressive Christian really visible. There was, I mean, there was an earlier iteration of it through uh, the emergent church movement. Daniel, I don't know if you were kind of around when that stuff was happening, but at least since I've been a Christian, the biggest um, person who has really popularized all these ideas is Rob Bell. So he wrote this book called love wins. And at the time he was, you know, he was an evangelical, he was an evangelical pastor. And he wrote this book that basically begin to ask questions about things that evangelicals have seen in essential. And one of the questions that he asks is like, is hell, is hell even real? Is hell even eternal? And so it was another like appeal that maybe universalism is true. And there was a lot of uproar around that because, you know, most people believe that, yes, there was other Protestants who had these questions and believed that these things were up for debate but evangelicals are firm about this. Um, And then Rob Bell also, you know, over time, he adopted a view of sexuality that allowed for homosexuality, you know, believing that it's not necessarily sinful. So I'd say Rob Bell is another one who made this movement visible. And one of the things about people like him, um, and well, specifically him and other progressive Christian movements, is that a lot of the ideas that that they're espousing, where they're asking questions of things that evangelicals have been confident about. These are things that in Protestant denominations, a lot of people also have these questions. A lot of other people have abandoned, you know, really strong beliefs on the authority of the Bible, the need for individuals to be converted. The unique thing about progressive Christianity is that many of the people in this movement are former evangelical Christians. That's what's different. It's not that uh, okay. the ideas that are different, it's that it's evangelicals, a lot of them who are deconverting or deconstructing, if you've heard those terms, and that's a big part of what progressive Christianity, why it's, I, I guess, there's so much um, talk about it, and it seems to have such an impact, is because it's, you know, it's, um, yeah, a lot of former evangelicals.
0: So it's kind of an ex-evangelical thing.
1: I... I don't know if they would call them that, but it seemed to have a very high proportion of ex-evangelicals within their movement. And I think that's part of what gives it so much visibility. So it's kind of like a
0: direct opponent to evangelicalism. Maybe even if they haven't named evangelicalism as an enemy, right? I mean, there's no like...
1: A lot of them name evangelicalism as an enemy enemy explicitly i would say a lot of them name evangelicalism as an enemy yeah, yeah explicitly they do a lot of them do yeah I'd, I'd, okay yeah. wow yeah. but there's
0: no like denomination called progressive christianity right this is just like a movement
1: yeah it's a grassroots movement but yeah again it's, it's interesting because a lot of these ideas i would argue they're not new like even you know you you have people like rob bell and many others um oh what's another guy uh there was a guy at Eastern University. I forget his name, but Tony Campolo? Not not Tony Campolo. Um but I would I would argue Tony Campolo is um kind of one one of the leaders within the movement. Um I for, I forget the guy's name. Maybe it'll come to me. But you know people who write books about the Bible that try to introduce more nuance in how you interpret it basically that like Maybe it's not all inspired, essentially. Some authors might have got it wrong. Um, And none of what they're saying is new at all. This is stuff a lot of Protestant denominations have been, mainline Protestant denominations have been teaching their seminaries. The difference now is that these are evangelicals who are introducing these ideas within evangelicalism, and a lot of times deconverting. And they're not necessarily just going to these mainline denominations. They're just kind of, I don't know, kind of starting their own movement, starting their own new movement. And I think that's part of what, yeah, like I said, part of what makes this movement so um, uh, so much part of the like, conversation within Christianity today. Because I think just wh- when it's like a pro- mainline Protestant saints and this kind of stuff, people just don't really care as much because it's kind of like a separate silo, I guess. Right. One thing that
0: comes to mind with that... In terms of from a theological perspective is you know when it comes to gay marriage and lgbt stuff they say well jesus never said anything bad about gay marriage right and there's a movement called the red letter movement where it focuses mainly on the words spoken by jesus that are recorded in the scripture and you know Jesus doesn't talk about everything in there and sometimes Paul or another apostle will comment on something uh and shed light on it and we would say that is inspired by god but within this progressive christianity movement many of those people would say well Jesus never came against anything like that or what is Jesus uh saying about Gay marriage, he's not saying anything, and he loves everyone. And there's an overemphasis on the God of love, which is true. God is love, but God is also just, and sin is also a reality, right? Wouldn't you say there's also a downplaying of sin too, and the need for people to repent from that and be born again and have a complete transformation?
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, it, it, it goes back again to what I said about like, it's a, a lot of it's a compromise on conversionism and um cruci- centricism is that like human beings don't inherently have a problem. I and mean, what's the problem if God loves you? And so that's why a lot of them, they'll downplay the cross and say, they might say like, oh, it happened as a demonstration of God's love, but it's not really an atoning work. It wasn't needed to deal with your sins. Like if God wanted to forgive you, he would just forgive you because he loves you. He didn't have to go to a cross to do that. And yeah, I mean, your point about the red letter Christians and you brought up Tony Campolo, he actually wrote a book called Red Letter Christians. And so you'll see, um, you know, with people like him, um, the author I was thinking of before, his name is Peter Enns, if you know him. I don't know if you've heard of him. I he, don't.
0: My mother-in-law works at Eastern University. Yeah, yeah. That's why That's why yeah. I thought
1: maybe you might know. But, but yeah, I don't. Yeah. So he's there too. But he, he wrote a book um, on just like how to interpret the Bible that... Um, I haven't read it, but I've I've listened to like a good bit of Peter Enns to pick up a lot of his ideas. And you're right you 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 have this emphasis on the God of Love. You have this idea that like if the letters are in red in the Bible, they're inspired, but then in the other words were just they're just kind of optional, as if Jesus didn't give his followers authority to say things about him that were correct. And I mean, I think for me that there's a huge logical contradiction there, um, because if you don't believe that these writers have authority, how do you believe that what they the red letters they recorded about Jesus were accurate? If you believe the red letters are authoritative, you believe that the people who wrote those words have authority. If you don't believe, if you believe the red letters are authoritative, you would believe the Old Testament is authoritative, because Jesus clearly did. You know, a lot of times when Jesus would create the or would quote the Old Testament, he would say things like God said. Now, there are times where in Old Testament, people would directly quote God, but other times the writer's writing and he's not directly quoting God. But even for those words, Jesus would say, God said. And so in Jesus's own theology, in his own mind, the Old Testament was inspired by God. And so there's just a lot of logical contradictions that you run into when you say the red letter words are the only ones inspired. And I would add, to the people who believe that only the red letter words, when I say red letter, it's the, the four Gospels, at the beginning of the New Testament that record Jesus's life. A lot of those people who believe that, they you, you never hear them talking about Revelation. Like, those words are red as well. Like, yet, how do you decide <laughs> that, like, that, like, Jesus's words here were, like, accurate and dependable, but then, like, Revelation, like, what? Do they believe it was just, like, made up? And so it's just, it, you just run into so many logical contradictions when you believe that. But again, like, it's just a way of, in my estimation, kind of down thoring, down, um, downplaying the authority of the Bible and allowing the, progr- the br- progress in the modern world and the ideas that we feel like progressing towards to hold greater weight so that anytime there's a seeming contradiction between the ideas that are being espoused in popular culture and the Bible, the ideas espoused in popular culture usually win. And the words from the Bible, like they only have authority when they don't seem to contradict what the culture is willing to accept as true. And so I'd say that's like a major compromise on how Christianity is is viewed. Yeah. I mean,
0: The way I see it, and this may be an oversimplification, but progressive Christianity is just an effort to make God into uh, your own image, whoever you want God to be. And the thing is, if God exists, which every Christian should believe that God exists, right? If he exists, then he exists as he is, not as how you want him to be. And the only way that you have to know how God exists is the scripture. And the scripture is reliable. It's been passed down to us. And, you know, you can't say like just about any, take any person. God is a person, right? Shay, you have likes, I have likes and dislikes. We have preferences, tendencies, personality traits. And, you know, you can't say to me, well, you know, Daniel likes uh, you seafood, And I would say, no, I don't, I don't like seafood. Like, where did you, I never said that. I, I, you've never seen me eat seafood. I don't like, and I don't really like seafood. So, you know, you can't just say, Hey, actually, he doesn't really mean it. Uh, he, he likes seafood. So that's a dumb example, but in the same way, we can't, we can't try to think like, Oh, we're smarter than God. Yeah. And, this is one thing that maybe we can touch on this in a future episode, but, uh, this whole idea of we are smarter than God, um, really developed, uh, after the enlightenment. Uh, and I mean, I guess it has always existed people thinking they know better than God, but, um, the point is really, we can't make God in our own image.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's like a really, um, It's a really good thing to point out that I think is pervasive. And it was one of the biggest warnings in the Old Testament of making God into your own image. I I would say the counterpoint that they would have is that they would say, and I don't agree with their counterpoint, but just to um, explain their position um, is the idea that, like, it's not that we're creating God. It's that we don't believe the Bible is God, and we also have the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of appeals... At least for some people, that like the Holy Spirit is the one revealing to them like that aspect of like these different aspects of God, and we can't make we don't want to be Bible deists, so we don't we don't treat the Bible as if God isn't living and active and still speaking. Like I I was seeing like some mainline Protestants who I who who adopt these liberal or progressive ideas, Um, they'll like some of their validation for. You know, putting like rainbow flags in front of their churches is that like there's a slogan, God is still speaking. So this idea that like, they wouldn't say that they're creating an idol or just making God into who they want him to be. They're saying that God is still revealing himself. And this is how he revealed himself as someone who, you know, promotes or accepts, uh, you know, uh, like non-traditional expressions of sexuality. Um I have thoughts on that, Dan. I don't know. I'm talking for a little bit. So do you have any any thoughts on that way of thinking? I you know, just to the – I know we're having a – we're
0: doing devil's advocate here because both of us are on the same page. But to that, I would say where did he speak? That's it. Where? You know, if he spoke something, where did he speak? What's the confirmation of it? I mean, I've never heard a prophet come and speak about that. That was confirmed
1: you know, through, through the scripture. Right. Yeah. Well, let's say he, he spoke through an individual witness of the Holy spirit. And I mean, I I would say to that, I mean, there was this this pastor. Yeah. I mean, there's a pastor who said like, yeah, God is still speaking, but he's not schizophrenic or whatever. (laughs) It's kind of a harsh way to put it, but essentially it's just like God doesn't contradict himself. It's like, if he spoke something through the Bible, yes, he still speaks through the Holy spirit. But the way that you discern whether something's really the Holy Spirit and it's not just your own ideas is if it's consistent with the witness that he's already given. And, and so regardless of the present nature with which God still exists, it's that, you know, he inspired the Bible. And so it's it's the framework through which we test everything. And any time that we're appealing to, like, the individual voice of God that contradicts the Bible, that's a good sign that you're creating a perception of God's voice. That is simply your own voice. You know, like it, it, that's how, you know, it's becoming an excuse for you to just kind of create a God in your own image is when it consistently contradicts a witness that we've already been given through the Bible.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's just picking and choosing uh, what you want from the scripture without Anything coherent and yeah. So anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean one of the things that we can go into because we've been we've been kind of critical so far, which for good reasons. We're very good at being critical. Yeah, and we'll be more critical a little bit, but like I think one one thing I want to talk about too is like be- because progressive Christian christianity is specifically i think in a lot of ways a reaction to evangelicalism you just look at the sheer number of people who find themselves in that movement who call themselves evangelical um, or who who are formerly evangelical and so like i'm kind of understanding progressive christianity is a little different than kind of a lot of mainline protestant that also have the same ideas but like these are ideas that have existed these denominations for a long time so it's not necessarily like huge swaths of people who grew up evangelical and are reacting to it um so progressive christianity a lot of I, I i mean just the consistent thread i've seen with people who grew up evangelical and leave and still like adopt some form of christianity that they call progressive christian um a lot of them they have criticisms of evangelicalism that i think has some legitimacy to it and so i wouldn't say the reaction to reject the whole thing is you know I don't agree with that but the criticisms um I think some of that's gonna be legitimate so I thought thought I'd go through like some some criticisms I think are are legitimate and maybe Daniel you can comment on some of that but um I think yeah, let's do it. I think one big one is um the over um like hypocrisy like hypocrisy in the church one of the things that has been a major black eye um, for, you know, especially since i I'd say like maybe the 80s when things, maybe that was when things became more public. I don't know. But just the amount of people who like leaders, pastors, but then I think this bleeds into just ordinary Christians who they preach one thing, they espouse one thing, and then get exposed for behavior that doesn't line up with what they say that like is right and wrong. You know, I think about pastors who get caught with affairs, we get caught with, fortunately, with prostitutes, Um, like, abuse that gets covered up. It's something that, you know, I, I don't know about you, Daniel, but it's like you almost start to become numb to it when it happens with, like, our leaders because it's just so often that it happens. And I think that, like, for people who watch that, it sometimes seems strange that, like, you can claim to believe something so strongly and then be doing things that so clearly violate your ideals a lot of times without any kind of remorse so i don't I don't know what you think about that but i'd say that's one criticism that i think i have a lot of um a lot of sympathy for yeah
0: for sure it's a, some definitely whenever injustice happens like covering up of abuse or immorality happens where there's a some kind of scandal or even a financial crime that happens or embezzlement, whatever, or not even a crime, just some kind of impropriety. There's a real reason to be upset and to be angry. Uh, and I think that it's, uh, yeah, it's totally justified. And the funny thing is, is that, uh, the Bible has the most negative things and the most critical things to say concerning those injustices and those wrongs. And I think that, you know, you can easily say that the parts of the Bible that criticize those things aren't really relevant today anymore.
1: Can you clarify that point? I'm not sure if I understand the last part.
0: Well, let's say, okay. Okay. progressive christians say that uh well we shouldn't judge people right let's just so then why are you getting upset at people who are hypocrites
1: you're judging them yeah yeah anyway no no i (laughs) no i i agree i think it's it's something something it's like sometimes who people get the most bad about like Christians judging others oftentimes are the most judgmental. Like they have the most judgmental tone and telling people not to judge. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of funny.
0: Right. So it's like, Hey, what about that? You know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't judge, but like, I just want to want you to listen without judging me. It's like, all right, cool. Then don't judge. But yeah, totally Justified in a criticism of you know, all those kind of moral failures, yeah. we as evangelicals hate those things too. And more importantly, God hates those kind of things yeah. uh, as well. I think that's an important point to make. And the crazy thing is that when people are upset about these injustices and these sins that happen, uh, one important thing to realize in coping with this is that God agrees with your anger and your grief towards this issue. While at the same time, God has compassion upon the people involved and He his grace goes out to them if they repent. But also, he is uh, definitely angry uh, at the action. And if there's any injustice that happens, he's also angry about that because God is just. Yeah. 100%. Nice. I like this next one. It's anti-intellectualism or fear of asking questions. What do you think about that as a
1: criticism of evangelicalism? Yeah. So one one of the things I think is like really big uh, in progressive Christian movement and something that they react to is that feeling that they grew up in an environment Where when they had questions that they needed to be answered, it's almost like you're not allowed to because you just have to have, like, faith. And so sometimes things don't always get explained. And um, one one pet peeve that I, I also share is that when someone has a question about God and you're asking someone, instead of saying that they don't know the answer, you know, let's say you ask someone a different difficult theological question, instead of the other person saying they don't know the answer, They make it seem as if there is no answer and you just have to believe. And I think that's like a classic example of anti-intellectualism. Instead of just admitting that either you don't know or it's not a question you're curious about, you're shutting the other person down from investigating, thinking about that question and almost making it seem that like an expression of like questioning or curiosity is an expression by itself of like unbelief or some kind of violation against God. And I would say that's that's like the core of anti-intellectualism. Um there was this really good book on this called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Mark Knoll. And it, it's basically a whole book talking historically of how sometimes evangelical Christians in their modern iteration, I would say this isn't something that's historically existed, but at least in the last like century or so, a little over a century, just how that they've they've really shut down like intellectual inquiry. Um, and have made excuses for that, um, as, um, basically just because, um, man, I'm losing my train of thought, but sometimes the idea of like needing to hold to the dogma that we, we do makes it so that it's not allowed to be intellectually curious, to seek understanding, to ask questions, or even you have questions about the Bible, about God, almost like shutting it down because, the the sheer act of asking questions is seen as like a lack of a lack of faith or a lack of trust in God. Yeah, that's crazy.
0: I mean, I just I remember uh, having similar experiences or at least thinking similar things as a kid. As I went to public school for high school and, you know, obviously I had a diversity of friends who believe several different things from evangelical to Catholic, atheists, or even some Muslim and Jewish kids there at school. But in college, I remember that I wanted to believe, but I had many doubts. And I got a hold of a book. Uh, what's it called? Josh McDowell The Carpenter.
1: What's uh, that one called? Or More Than Carpenter.
0: More Than a Carpenter, yeah. and I read this, and it's like a book filled with apologetic arguments about the veracity and the truth, the truth and the reliability of scripture.
1: So what, what are apologetics just to clarify?
0: Apologetics is just the defense of Christian uh, defense of something. So uh, Christian apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. So there's this guy, Josh McDowell, and he just had some very simple defenses of Christianity, the existence of God, uh, the Scripture, and I read the book, and I was shocked that people actually had answers to these simple questions. You know what I mean? Because growing up evangelical, like we just never talked about it. You just assumed God was real. You just you just assumed that the Bible somehow kind of floated down from the heavenly throne to the earth, and it was like. You know, there's just not a whole lot of intellectual power or strength given to like sewing up some of these questions that people had. And so like the book was not by any means like a work of scholarly art or anything. It was just some very like simple arguments. Like I remember one, it was just uh, if God doesn't exist, moral absolutes don't exist. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. It's like, do moral absolutes exist? I'm like, I think so. And then it's like, does, because I mean, I think that just to kill someone randomly is wrong, right? So if I want to say that to kill someone randomly is not wrong, then I can hold the belief that yeah, God doesn't exist. But if I say that killing someone randomly is actually wrong, absolutely. Then I, it's very hard to hold that belief without a belief in God. Or some person who's setting the rules, right? And so anyway, it's just like these things, I was more shocked that someone had taken the time and thought through these things uh, rather than shocked at the brilliance of the arguments. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, Uh, no. Yeah, I remember.
0: Just want to tell everybody there are answers to your questions, okay? If you have questions, just keep asking and keep looking. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And yeah, this is a big, like your experience is what a lot of people describe. And then when they feel like they can't find answers, they just kind of, you know, figure there are none. But I think that's a good thing about like the internet and like just the access we have in information is if you really want to dig, you can dig for it yourself. But I, I had a similar experience to you when I became a Christian, that the first like kind of apologetic ish book I read was mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And again, a very simple book. But like he was saying stuff that I never heard someone like try to explain Christianity for someone who didn't really believe. Yeah, and like I'm just like, oh my goodness, these arguments are so they make so much sense. Like why had no one like say this to me before? Um, and I I didn't notice like I've been well actually like a few months ago I I kind of went through a like a season where I was listening to like some Catholics, um, just Catholic ideas, Catholic apologetics, and like protestant catholic debates and one of the criticisms that catholics have is again this this issue of anti-intellectualism or when you think of like the great thought leaders in the Western history who are christian so many of them are catholic and like the joke is like you know catholics have all these people like augustine gk chesterton thomas aquinas and then protestants have c.s lewis <laughs> so that's the joke but
0: um, yeah. I mean, barely. And he wasn't really even evangelical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, be- the best books I've read that are simple with apologetics, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell, mm-hmm. Mirror Christianity, C.S. Lewis, Reason for God, Tim Keller. There are other ones. Probably other ones are well, better.
1: There's one I, one I read, uh, Evidence it Demands a Verdict. Um, oh, yeah. By Josh McDowell as well, right?
0: That's also Josh McDowell. It's a. It's got tons of.
1: Wait, evidence. more than the Carpenter was Lee Strobel, actually. No,
0: that's it's Josh
1: McDowell. No,
0: I'm pretty Case sure. For more than, Case oh, for Case
1: Christ is Lee Strobel. Okay, that's okay. a good
0: one. I've heard. I've never read it though. Yeah, there's, there's a
1: movie, um, like on that movie, "Case for Christ." All those arguments released trouble, but yeah, evidence demands a verdict. Yeah, it's Josh McDowell, and then it was revised by his son, Sean McDowell. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages and answers like every possible question you can think of. I remember listening to an audiobook a number of years ago. It was like 40 hours or something. <laughs> so It's really intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really intense. But I guess just. Use it that, as a library. Yeah. I guess just our point is that, and there's so many yeah. good YouTubers as well that talk about this stuff. But the point I think we're making is that like in the criticism of anti-intellectualism. We um, identify with that yeah yeah and and we found that there were answers it's just that you have to look for it and it's not always presented to you automatically but if you look for it there's answers and there's there's a book um called another gospel by Alyssa Childers she's a she's a YouTuber and I'm a former like Christian singer um but she just wrote a book on essentially on progressive christianity so it's a really good follow up book um if you want to read more after this conversation but she talked about how you know she grew up kind of evangelical and then started to get it, introduced to progressive christian ideas and then ended up coming out of it because she found that there were good answers and one of the criticisms that she had of progressive christianity is that she says in progressive christianity doubt has become a has become a badge of honor to bask in rather than an obstacle to face and overcome. I'm going to read that again. In, pro- in progressive Christianity, doubt has become a badge of honor to bask in, rather than an obstacle to face and overcome. And so it's okay to be curious and have questions. It's normal to have doubts. But the end goal isn't to remain in this state in which you can't really know anything. It's to find answers. It's to find things that like anchor you to the faith. And that's where we would differ from this criticism that progressive Christians have is that sometimes their um their perception of anti-intellectualism leads them to a place where it's like you can't really know there's so many things that you just like can't know about God. And so to have any kind of dogma or core convictions about certain things is seen as arrogance. And I would, I would argue that um there are good reasons to develop those convictions.
0: Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, number three is one we've talked about before uh in f- prior podcasts, but over-identification of political beliefs. This is uh, one criticism that gets launched
1: against evangelicals. So this is another one. I think there's legitimacy too. I think one of the things that we shared, um, kind of, we we would both identify as conservatism. We would both, um, you can you can agree or disagree, but I'm pretty sure you do. But we would also say um, for our political- America Godly again, <laughs> our uh, political convictions. You know, there I, I do think that there are biblical reasons as to why most evangelical Christians would fall into of conservative camp. So that's something that I would agree with. Um, one area is where I think the criticism is legitimate is that the, I don't know, just the desire to identify with their political camp sometimes makes it so I think things get added to biblical convictions that are more cultural than biblical. That's, that's my view about it. And there almost becomes this idolatry of, conservative political leaders that i think is inappropriate with a group that believes that they're living for eternity and believes that change ultimately comes from human hearts being changed like that's the core of it not like through some kind of top-down thing that by gaining power in these different spheres we're gonna like convert everyone that way um that's a that seems to be very antithetical to the evangelical belief on like conversionism and so so yeah, I do think that it's unfortunate and um, that like evangelicalism has just become this political voting block label. And for me personally, it's it's an aspect of evangelicalism that I really disassociate f- from, even if I hold to some of the same political beliefs.
0: Yeah, very fair criticism. We've talked about this before. Just I remember the Instagram photos of the evangelical christian leaders just worshiping and praying for donald trump in the white house and it's just like man looks like they really love being in there
1: (laughs) (laughs) we did it (laughs) we did it
0: but yeah for sure um okay next one number
1: four controlling leaders what do you have to say about that fourth criticism? Yeah, I mean, we can almost combine this with, with legalism and even like the the first point on like hypocrisy. But yeah. I think just sometimes people have can have really bad um, uh, interactions with like church or ministry leaders and not to throw church or ministry leaders under the bus because Daniel's in full-time ministry. I spent a season in full-time ministry. So I'm not like... Um, I'm not like throwing throwing lobs at people that I don't have a relationship with and I don't have high respect for. but um, yeah, just situations where leaders can really, um, I think sometimes have a lot of ambition. Um, yeah, it can really cross boundaries with, um calls for like submission and can kind of rob people of their individual autonomy and in how they how they treat them. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have more thoughts on that, but that's kind of what, what I think about when I think about some of the ways people have negative interactions with leadership. Yeah. I mean, I think
0: that this criticism is just comes down to, uh, the kind of, like we talked about in number one, people feeling something that is true. Like maybe a leader treated them wrongly, or maybe a leader manipulated them or tried to control them. And this just comes down to two realities. First reality is that humans are sinful and leaders are sinful too. And we're prone to sin. And so some leaders are going to mistreat some of their followers or people they have in their care. And secondly, it's like what we said before, if, anything like this happen to you, then you have a just reason to be upset and to voice your concern and to do these things. And God actually identifies with you with that. The greatest injustice was Jesus on the cross and you are not alone with the Lord there. But I would just say that this is a fair criticism, but don't let, if this is to say personally, you're, you're dealing with this criticism of, you were controlled by a leader or people were being legalistic towards you in terms of uh, you know, making some rules that didn't necessarily line up with the Bible. Uh, Don't let it turn you away from Jesus because Jesus sees your heart and he sees what happened to you. And really at the end of this, You know, this is all about drawing close to our Lord Jesus and listening to what he actually said in the Bible. And many of these criticisms, they are things that Jesus would also agree with. And sometimes just as human beings, we create cultures that aren't necessarily biblical or in line with God's heart. And we have to be open to these criticisms. And this is a struggle uh, that we have because sometimes we feel like the things that we've culturalized in our Christianity are actually
1: biblical and they're coming from God. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to to add on to um, just the idea of the, the sinfulness that sometimes exists in, in leadership, I think one thing that's unique about evangelicalism, like evangelical Protestantism, is that it's it's very anti institutional um so you think about like a you know expression of christianity is very institutional You like think about catholicism it's very much built on like a like a specific hierarchical structure that it uses to kind of govern the church when you think about evangelicalism protestantism like there's a lot of denominations but as the evangelical thread has Continued through Protestantism, it's like led to a drift away from denominations. You know, most people, like historically, most Protestant denominations were evangelical. Nowadays, most mainline denominations, most people in it would not identify as evangelical, not necessarily identify with these distinctives. And most of the people who were more evangelical, there's more of a drift towards non denominational. Ministry, So like no denominations. And I think one of the things that's happened, one of the things that's done is that it's allowed individuals with strong personalities and strong leadership skills to kind of hold so much more, um, I guess, like power. And so like when there's uh, like real like character issues or leadership problems, that can get accentuated so much more rather than when you're an institution where like there's like it's less likely for individual personalities to be able to kind of like rise to build these like large um like institutions so it's like it's like the institution is built around individual personalities and leaders rather than like a larger denomination and i and i would say that that's I I don't know the solution to that, honestly. All I know is that um, I think it is a big problem that um, it seems like when individual leaders with a lot of giftings and influence fall, we have a structure that is set up where it causes so much more damage than it would if we were kind of more institutionalized. And that's not an argument for institutionalization and like going back to just like organizers organizing around denominations but it is like a downside i think of the direction that we've gone yeah well one
0: strength of a big denomination is that you have some controls on the leaders exactly and theoretically the structure the institution is supposed to pull out the leaders who are not doing well or you know and discipline them and remove them but when you have all these independent non-denominational non-institutionalized churches that are standalone they're oftentimes like you said built around the one-man show
1: and there's no real control or checks and balances against them yeah and if, if someone like kind of messes up or whatever, they could just go start a new church somewhere else. And so, like, there's <laughs> never really. Yes, definitely.
0: <laughs> uh, hashtag people shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. But, all right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening in. Let's do a quick summary of the Bevington quadrilateral from Sheyi.
1: Yeah, so so back to the Baby quadrilateral. And like one of the things that we're doing in this episode, the last episode is kind of showing the things that we think are core to Christianity, but also what evangelicalism is defined from defined by and showing some of the contrast with progressive Christianity. So I thought I'd just end with a summary of these things. So the four points uh, were Biblicism, cruciscentricism, focus on the cross, conversionism, the the belief that human beings need to be converted and activism the belief that gospel needs to be expressed in effort and i would say for three of these four points progressive christianity specifically compromises on these core convictions so biblicism um, i would argue that progressive christianity even if some of them hold to the rhetoric of the bible being inspired the bible is seems to be interpreted in such a way where many parts of it seem optional to be submitted to and when there's a conflict between kind of a, a modern idea over morality different things like that it seems like the culture usually wins and the bible is either reinterpreted or seen as outdated and so i'd say that's one area of progressive christianity compromises on biblicism christianism a focus on the turning work of christ um So there's this belief that God is just so loving that, um, you know, he doesn't, you know, people don't really need to be saved. Um, And for, I mean, for many of the, for many people. And I I would also say, I don't know if we touch on it this much on this episode, but there doesn't seem to be this core belief that human beings are inherently sinful and need to be saved. You know, that a lot of times the focus on the goodness of humanity the ability for us that if we make good decisions to just kind of be able to be good. And so it kind of downplays the work of the cross and the need for the cross. And that ties into conversionism, this belief that if human beliefs are, if human beings are inherently good, if God's love means that the atoning work of the Christ, the atoning work of the cross wasn't necessarily necessary. It was for many of them just necessary to demonstrate God's love, but not necessarily to save us. That like then more, more than we'll see it, that like you wouldn't need to convert people to Christianity. You won't really need to aim to try to get people to find Christ. As long as people find their own path towards their own happiness, that's good enough. Because, you know, any other path, as long as it's accomplishing, making people more moral or more happy, um, it's good. So that's that's another thing that I see Um Again, another thing that we didn't really touch on that much. But, um, and then activism, the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed in effort. I would say that that's actually a strong point of progressive Christianity. I think there is a lot of emphasis on um, like social expressions that aim to bring benefit to mankind, even if we might disagree somewhat on what they believe is like the best or most beneficial for human beings. I would say that it is a strong point that they believe that the Christianity should be expressed through, um, like loving their neighbor. And so I would say that is one area where there isn't necessarily a compromise on those four convictions. But for those three other ones, I'd say there's like a strong, strong compromise in it. I mean, that in a negative sense.
0: Awesome. Great. Well, guys, thanks for listening in. And we'll see you next time on the Euphrates Network podcast.